Let's pray for our children as they're going to be dismissed to their classes. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the gift of Christ, the gift of salvation. Thank you, Lord, that you did not have us work for our own salvation. Lord, but you freely gave it to us through Christ. And we pray now that you prepare our hearts as we open up once again to John chapter 3. Pray for our children who are dismissed to their classes that you administer your grace to them in a way that only you can in their classes there with the teachers. Allow them to communicate the word of God to them in a way that they can understand it and apply it to their own lives. Father, we thank you and we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Children, you're dismissed. You can turn over in your Bibles to John chapter 3 and just a couple of things. Um, Some of you have asked... uh, are we having a Resurrection Sunday service? Yes, we are. <laughs> uh, but we're also, we may have a sunrise service. Uh, we're working on that right now. We're talking with Kenyatta College, so we won't have to drive all the way up to Skylon. But we can just do our own right there at Kenyatta uh, College on Lot 7 that overlooks the golf course and the whole Bay Area there. And hopefully the weather would be a little nicer there than going way up onto Highway 1 there. But our Skyline Boulevard so uh, be praying about that, and we'll find out tomorrow, hopefully, that whether we get the green light or not. We should be able to do that, and uh, we would encourage you to come out. We're probably going to meet about 6.45 in the morning. I know it's early, but maybe we can have a little coffee here afterwards and, and um, a little fellowship before our morning service. Uh, uh, thank you for praying for Ambika. Her back is doing a little bit better. She got a shot on Friday, so that was good. They got her in before her trip. She's going to up to see the grandchildren next week on Wednesday. So uh, we had to get that done before she have to get on a plane with that pain in her back. And so hopefully this shot will take effect. And we just thank you for your prayers and uh, your concern. But as we looked at John chapter 3 once again, we're talking about the transforming power of Christ. And um, we just have about 40 minutes this morning and we'll continue where we left off last week. We were talking here in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, and we're talking about this man of the Pharisees, Nicodemus, who was the ruler of the Jews, a ruler of the Jews, a teacher, the teacher of Israel. And uh, he comes to Christ at night, and we've discussed some of these things, and he says in verse to there, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who comes from God, for no one can do these things, these signs, unless God is with him. And we said that after that opening statement, he probably was going to continue with a bunch of buts. He was probably going to say, but you know what, we're looking for the Messiah, but you're not of Jerusalem. Uh, you know what, Jesus, you're... You're, you're not reaching the religious leaders. You're reaching the common people, um, those infidels, because that's how they felt as, as being a Pharisee. Uh, but you have not done anything to overthrow the Roman Empire, uh, but you are deceiving the, the, the common people and all this stuff. And you know what? Besides that, you didn't consult us, the Pharisees, about you being the Messiah. So he knew G- Nicodemus was going to say that. And so in the context of John chapter 3, Jesus just cuts him right off and basically says to him in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so we've talked here about the need for spiritual birth in verses 1 through 3. And now we're looking at the nature of this spiritual birth, the nature of it. We saw his concern. 
He was one who was concerned in verse 4 because he asked a question, how can a man, they're talking in the third person, by the way, Jesus gives him an illustration. He doesn't say, you know, I, I say to you, unless you are born again, he says, unless one is born again. So he's talking to him in the third person. And Nicodemus continues this illustration, this, this dialogue in verse 4. He said, how can a man be born when he is old? And so he brings up two problems, the problem of age and the problem of birth. If you're already born, how can you be born again? And some people say, well, Nicodemus didn't understand what he was talking about. And I think he did. He knew exactly what he was talking about. And we talked about what does this mean when he says in verse uh, uh, four, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be, be born? And Jesus answered him and said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so we left off with discussing four of the major views of what people think that means. Uh, some people believe it means water baptism, being baptized, uh, being baptized, and then being born again. Some people say that. Uh, other people say, well, no, it doesn't mean that. It, it means physical and spiritual birth. It's talking about when the woman's water breaks, and then you have the, the spiritual birth, which is being born again. Um, well, th- that wasn't something culturally that they would not understand at all. They didn't deal with all that. And so it's probably not that. I know it's not that. And some people say, well, maybe it's the Word and the Spirit. You know, because the Bible speaks of the word cleansing us. It refers to a lot of times Psalm 119 and uh, John 15, John 17, things like that, being sanctified through the, through, the, through the word of God. And some people say, well, maybe it means the word and the spirit. The washing of the word is what that water refers to. And I ended last week saying, I don't believe it means any of those things. I think it talks about spiritual cleansing. I think that's what Jesus' point was. Now, you have to remember, what was Nicodemus? Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a ruler in Israel. He knew the Bible very, very well, especially, you know, the first, the, the 22 books of the Hebrew Bible at that time. He knew them. He probably had them, most of them memorized. He was the teacher. And what I'm trying to tell you is that I think Jesus knew exactly what was going on in Nicodemus's heart. And he knew exactly how to reach this man through the Old Testament Scriptures. And I think he was referring to something that Nicodemus would purely understand. I don't think he was trying to trick Nicodemus. I don't think he was speaking in clues here to Nicodemus. Um, because remember, in a Jewish mind... The kingdom of God to, to the Jew, the kingdom of God is going to be established. They really believe that. And they believe it's going to be established on earth. And they believe that Israel is going to be restored. And that there's going to be a Messiah. And that he's going to be ruling and reigning. And that they will be entering the land, they call it. The kingdom of God. They call it the land. And the Messiah will sit on his throne and he'll rule from Jerusalem over the whole world. This is what the Jewish mind thinks. And so... Where does Nicodemus have all of his training, all of his mindset, all of his intellect? Is in the Scriptures. It's in the Old Testament. And so what Jesus is doing is saying, Nicodemus, does this ring a bell to you? Does this help you out at all? If you're born of water and the Spirit? He was familiar with the prophets. He knew all these things. 
And notice it does not say that which is born of the, or it does not say, truly, truly, I say to you, verse 5, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit. It doesn't say that. It says one is born of water and the Spirit. And so grammatically, you have to put those two together. Whatever happens to the water happens to the Spirit. Whatever happens to the Spirit happens to the water. They're not two distinct actions. They're one. It's representing one action. Because if it was representing two actions, he would have said, unless you're born of the water and of the Spirit, making it an entirely separate thing. But he didn't do that. Because it's not entirely separate. And so he brings up these, these issues to Nicodemus. And I think Nicodemus would have gone right to Ezekiel chapter 36. Turn back there. And I said last week before I left, hey, check out this chapter in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36. And I probably should have clarified it, but it's always good to read the Word of God. Verses 25, some of you read the whole, the whole chapter thinking, what's he talking about here? Okay, well, we're going to focus on verse 25, because I think this is exactly what Jesus is saying. This is what he's trying to get across to Nicodemus. Uh, and in, in, in Ezekiel 36, there's a passage here that teaches us that you, you have to be spiritually cleansed. You have to have the Spirit of God work in your heart in order to enter the land. In the context. And this principle bound up in one of the most marvelous passages in the Old Testament describes God's saving work and how it applies to Israel. But that saving work also applies to us as Gentiles throughout all who come to Christ, as a matter of fact. So here's how salvation works. Look at, at, at Ezekiel chapter 36 and notice as you read through down verse 25, basically, start. He starts, and I just want you to go through in your Bibles and start counting the times he says, I will. The Lord says, I will. Over and over and over and over again, he uses those two words. I will do this. I will do that. I will sprinkle clean, verse 25. I will cleanse you, verse 25. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart. A new spirit I will put in within, within you. I will remove the heart of stone. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you. Verse 28, I will be your God. Verse 29, I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. Verse 30, I will make the fruit of the tree and increase the field in abundance. Verse, uh, verse 30, uh, 31, um, or verse 32, he says, it's not for your sake that I will act. Uh, down to verse 33, on that day I cleanse you, I will cause the cities to inhabit it. And then at the very last, the last words of, of verse 36 there, I have spoken, I am the Lord, I will do it. Over and over again, God says, I will. The question is why? Why does God say this over and over and over again? And why is Jesus bringing this up to, of all people, Nicodemus? Because salvation is not a human work. Salvation is a work of God. And if someone's going to be saved, it's going to be God who saves them. Hello? It's not us. It's God who does the salvation of a soul. 
This is, in theology, we call this monergism or the monergistic look at salvation. There's two views on this. There's monergistic view and the the synergistic view, and, and just not to bore you with theology, but it's very important you understand this because there's people on both sides of this. This is at the debate of what the gospel says and how we come to Christ. So if you define those two terms, the first one being monergism, theologically speaking, it's the view that God alone affects our salvation. Mono, one. He alone affects our salvation. Monergism. This is the view that's usually associated with Calvinism or the Reformers, the traditional view of salvation. Well, what's the other view, you say? Well, the other view is synergism. You have monergism and synergism. Synergism is the, the view that God works together with us somehow to affect our salvation. He doesn't say this. We kind of work with God to save ourselves. And what does Ezekiel say here? Over and over, the Lord says, I will do this. I will sprinkle you clean. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone. Over and over and over and over again, he says this. And he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. See, this is the work of the water and the spirit. It's one work. It's the work of spiritual cleansing in our lives. This water and spirit is simply a reference to creation, the new creation. The the regenerating of the human heart. That's completely a work of God. And he does it by his own will in the heart of a sinner. And here he's promising one day to do it not only to individual Jews and Gentiles, but one day for the whole nation of Israel in Ezekiel, he's promising that. He says, I will put in you a new heart, a new spirit. I'll remove that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you. He says, I'll cause you to walk in my statutes. Over and over and over again, you see those words, I will, I will, I will, I will. And at the end, he says, and I, you will be my people, and I will be your God. That's the work of the water and the Spirit. I mean, this would have been very familiar to Nicodemus. As soon as Jesus brought up water and Spirit, this is where his mind would have went as a teacher in Israel. And then I think he would have went on when... when went one more over to chapter 37 where God looks at the future of Israel and he says in verse 3 look at what it says in Ezekiel 37 verse 3 this is the picture of we know this the valley of the dry bones remember that song dry bones dry bones you know that song well it illustrates what Israel's spiritual deadness And the Lord here gives this picture in verse 3, Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 3. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? He's asking him, can these bones live? And I answered, oh Lord, you know. (laughs) That's a good answer. (laughs) Verse 4, 
Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, look at, I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. In other words, what's the message here for Israel? God will give life in the future of Israel. He will save them, not only as individuals, but as a nation. That's why we don't hold to what theologians call replacement theology, where some people say, well, Israel disobeyed God, so therefore they don't matter anymore. They're irrelevant. Now it's all about the church. All the promises Israel transferred over to the church. No, Israel is still the apple of God's eye. Verse 6, it says, And I will lay sinews upon you, and I will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin. And look, and put breath in you. And you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. This is the work of God in the new birth. This is what happens to us when we come to Christ. Look down one, a couple more verses there. Verse 12, the same chapter. Verse, uh, chapter 37 of Ezekiel, verse 12, he says, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from the graves, O my people. I will bring you, look at what it says, into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves, there you have the I again, and raise you from your graves, O my people. Verse 14, And I will put my spirit, what? Within you, he says. And you shall, what? Live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, he says. I will do it, declares the Lord. See, this is the sovereign work of God. Giving life in the future to the nation of Israel. That's his promise to that nation. That's his plan. That's his means of salvation, by the way, for every individual as well. But it's a work of God. That's my point. Now go back to John chapter 3. Now think, Nicodemus knew this passage. But where's his focus? His focus is on the external, as a Pharisee, just like Paul's was. Just like any religious leader Their focus usually is on the outside, what people see. They portray themselves as righteous. He would have been very familiar with the 11th chapter of Ezekiel as well. And and I'll just read it for you. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19, it says, And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their what? I will be their God. That's Ezekiel eleven nineteen. See, this is a work, a divine work, that God points out over and over in the Old Testament. And Nicodemus, as an Old Testament teacher, would have known these verses. Another one is in Jeremiah chapter 24. Verse 7, Jeremiah 24, 7, I will give them a, a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. For they shall return to me with their whole heart. That's recreation. That's God giving us a new heart. It's not just adding Jesus to who we are today. We're so bad off, 
God has to say, you know what? I can't fix you up. I have to recreate you. That's why the Bible says, behold, all old things are what? Passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. You have a new heart. You have a new spirit. You've been washed. You've been cleansed. That's where Nicodemus's mind would have went to when Jesus pointed out to him, unless you're born of the water and the spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And even in Jeremiah 31, 31, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, Jeremiah 31, 31, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of uh, Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put, listen, my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. What's he say? I'm creating a brand new people for myself. I'm giving them a new spirit, a new heart. I'm washing them. I'm cleansing them. I'm purifying them. That's all new covenant language. That's what happens when someone is born again. That's what happens when someone is saved. That's not just a New Testament theology. Did the Old Testament teach the need for spiritual cleansing and spiritual rebirth? You bet it did. It taught the work of the Holy Spirit in someone's life in order to enter the land that God promised to them. See, that's why I believe Nicodemus totally understood what Jesus was pointing out to him. I think the matter of spiritual cleansing, the spiritual birth, and Ezekiel's promise, all that is what was on the Lord's mind. And he knew that's where Nicodemus would go as a teacher of the law. So in general, you can, you can say that this, this means, it doesn't mean those other three things, it means basically a spiritual cleansing that gives you a brand new start, a brand new slate. Remember the, uh, what do they call that thing, the uh, Etch-a-Sketch? Remember those Etsy turn the little wheels? And, and remember you get tired of your thing, you'd shake it and it'd be, all be gone. And you could start brand new. That's what God does through Christ for us. We become part, be partakers of the divine nature. He says, I'll put my spirit within you. This is what it means to be born again. And you look at this condition here of entering the kingdom of God in verse 6. And you have this contrast between these two births. In verse 6, he says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And here we go again. You know, I, sometimes you can read pages and pages and pages of commentaries and everybody has a different point of view. What does this mean? Just like the previous verse. And I think it was, it was John MacArthur who said, yeah, you know, the one commentary goes on for pages and pages. And he goes, frankly, they have to, because what they're saying doesn't make any sense. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Some say, well, this is the, the flesh is the deprived nature, the old nature. That's what that is. Some say that flesh refers to the external things. Everything we do externally, which a Pharisee would have understood because that's all they were concerned with, how they looked in front of other people. They'd dress up in their robes, they'd go out and they'd pray in front of everybody. And Oh, thank God we're not like these other people. Look at us, we're so holy. You have people in religions today that portray that same external look. So they say, some people say, well, the flesh refers to the external and the spirit, spirit refers to the internal. That which is of the spirit is, is uh, spirit. Uh, some say the flesh is, is limited. The spirit is not. That's true, but I don't think that's what they're pointing out here. Some even say that uh, the, the, the flesh must refer to the physical body. Our physical body and, and the spirit refers to our, our spiritual nature. But I think all those things bypass what is the, the most likely, the common sense application of what Jesus... Why would Jesus say this to Nicodemus? Why would he say, Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit? Why would he point this out to him? I think it's pretty simple. I think what Jesus is basically telling Nicodemus is that, you know what? Everything, Nicodemus produces after its own kind. Think about this. Everything produces after its own kind. The flesh, what does it produce? Flesh. The spirit, what does it produce? Spirit. See, this is what he's pointing out to Nicodemus. Whatever is born of the flesh, it's flesh. You can't do anything to change that. You can't make that spiritual, Nicodemus. On the other hand, what is is born of the Spirit is spirit. Well, how can you be born of the Spirit? Is that something Nicodemus could do? No. So he finds himself in a kind of a precarious situation here. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. What's Jesus saying to Nicodemus? You know what? Nicodemus, you can try as hard as you want. You can can climb that ladder of religion as high as you want. Everything you produce, guess what? It's of the flesh. It's of the flesh. And if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you're not going to do it that way. You have to be what? Born again. And you can tell that's what's going through Nicodemus' mind because the first thing he asks, well, how can this happen? (laughs) Wait a minute, Jesus, how can a man, how can I do this? See, Nicodemus is truly a troubled individual. He's very wealthy, he's very successful, he's at the top of his game as far as Judaism goes, very respected teacher. But I think in the deep recesses of his own soul, he knows it's not enough. There's got to be something more. How many of us have been saved out of religion realizing that? We've been faithful to our church, our religion, year after year after year, only to find out, wait a minute, this isn't meeting my needs. I'm coming up empty at the end of the day. 
I'm doing all the prayers. I'm doing all the rituals. I'm doing all the services. I'm doing everything they're telling me to do. But there's something missing here. And you go to bed at night wondering what it is. Nicodemus had that haunting void in his life. I guarantee it. Because religious activity will not save you. Religious activity does not give you peace with God. Religious activity does not extinguish your sins or wipe them away or wash them away. So he says, you know what, Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. There's a a foundational principle here, Nicodemus, that you have to understand, and you've completely overlooked it in your religious quest. Nicodemus, what does flesh produce? His answer would be, flesh? (laughs) Exactly. The harder you work in the flesh, what are you going to do? You're just going to produce more flesh. That's all you're going to produce. You can't get from flesh to spirit, Nicodemus. You can't do it. It's impossible. What he's basically calling Nicodemus out here as a teacher in the Jewish society there, at the top of his game, he's calling him out and he's saying, you know what, I can't believe you do not understand this. You do not understand the Old Testament doctrine of what? Of sin. You've missed it completely. You think somehow you're covering your sin with your robes and all your knowledge and your degrees and getting impressing people? No. What do we call that? We call that the doctrine of total what? Depravity. Not halfway, not three quarters, total, total depravity. It's the utter inability and the unwillingness of any sinner to do what is right in the eyes of God. We are totally depraved. We've bought into the idea that sin is something we do. And so if we just stop doing these things, then, then we won't be a sinner. No. Sin is not based upon what we do. Sin is based upon who we are. We are sinners. We don't become sinners. We are born sinners. This is total depravity. Total depravity means sinners have no ability whatsoever to do spiritual good or work for their own salvation from their sins. And there's some people that disagree with that. Well, I believe there's some good in everybody. No, there's not. Well, how can you say that? Go all the way back to the beginning. This is where Nicodemus would have went in this conversation. How can you be a teacher of Israel, Nicodemus? You know and not know about the, the new covenant salvation, about the washing of regeneration. How can you know, not know this? How can you not know that the washing of the word, the giving of the new heart, the new spirit being planted within you? How can you not know that this is God's work? It's not yours. 
he gives them this indicator. Flesh can only produce what, Nicodemus? It can only produce flesh. It's not going to produce spirit. And when he said that, I think Nicodemus would go back to Genesis chapter 6. When God gives his reasons, you remember in Genesis 6, he gives the reason why he's going to drown the entire world. His creation, he's going to wipe them out. All the millions of people who were born since Adam to Noah, all are going to drown in a flood. With the exception of Noah, his wife, and his three sons and three wives. Eight people who were justified by God through faith by grace. But the rest of the world, guess what happened to them? They drowned. They were executed. They were judged. And you say, well, why would God do such a horrible thing? This is where the whole human race ended up in a very short period of time. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, God says this, My spirit shall not always strive with man forever, because he, is also, because he also is flesh. That's the same word that Jesus used in the New Testament. When he said, flesh produces flesh, Nicodemus. Saying this, this, this word for fallen here, this word for flesh, it's, it's fallen, it's corrupt, it's sinful. Sinful humanness. And down in verse 5, he shows what flesh produces. Genesis 6, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And listen, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is how bad it got. There wasn't any goodness there. That speaks of total human depravity. Every intent intent of every thought of every heart was only evil continually before God. Why? Because flesh produces flesh. Because that's all it can produce. And Nicodemus, if you're going to be in the kingdom of God, if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, if you're going to see the kingdom of God, my friend, you need a new heart. You don't need more religion. You need a new heart. And it's quickly how, it's interesting when you go through Genesis, Genesis chapter 8, the flood begins to fade away. The whole human race has been drowned. And we come down to chapter 8, and we hope that there would be a better world, right? You think that people would get the hint. God wiped them out once. And what does Noah do? Noah builds an altar in verse 20. He takes animals and he offers God's sacrifices, which means that Noah recognizes that he is what? He's a sinner. And he needs to appease a holy God because he he offered him sacrifices. And it says that the Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself this, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. But, By the way, (laughs) the intent of man's heart is still evil from his youth. Wow. What changed? Nothing changed, except God made a promise he wouldn't drown anybody anymore. (laughs) Did you know that, Nicodemus? Did you understand that? Yes, he did. He was a teacher of the Old Testament law. He knew that nothing in man pleases God. He knew that in the deep recesses of his heart. 
He knew Psalm 51.5 where David says, In sin did my mother conceive me. I was iniquitous from my conception. He knew that verse. He knew Isaiah 64.6. All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before a holy God. All of us wither like a leaf and our iniquity is like the wind takes us away. There is no one who calls upon your name. No one. You have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. That's the Old Testament teaching of total depravity. It's not just something that's in the New Testament. It has its roots in the Old Testament. You can't leave out Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is more deceitful than anything else. Desperately sick, it says. This is the human heart. That's what it's saying about it. See, there was a time when even Saul, who was a Pharisee, he thought like Nicodemus. Hey, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a Pharisee. I've, I've... Faultless and as far as the law is concerned. Um, all this, he lists that all out in, in Philippians chapter 3. But he understood this Old Testament doctrine. And he says, you know what? All that so-called righteousness that I thought was righteousness, I count it like manure <laughs> in comparison to knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because Paul came to understand that he needed a new heart. And that happened when God arrested him on the road and saved his soul. Paul understood that Old Testament doctrine. Turn over to Romans chapter 3 quickly. Romans chapter 3. In Romans 3, Paul's really speaking here. He's indicting the whole human race, Jew and Gentile, for their sin. He's saying, yeah, well, you know what? Uh, uh, Gentiles are sinful, but... Jews are just as sinful. And for a Pharisee, ex-Pharisee, to say something like that, that says something right there because they thought they were above sin. And look at what he says starting in verse 9. And and I just want to tell you, all these quotes that we're going to read here from verse 9 down to verse 18, they're all quotes from the Old Testament. This is where Paul pulls these out of. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are the Jews any better off compared to the Gentiles? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, all, both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. Just because you're Jewish, it doesn't mean you're not sinful. Verse 10, as it is written, look at what he says. And these are such... Uh, Just bold statements. There's no wiggle room here. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. Just in case you misunderstood what he said, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Tell that to the seeker movement. Tell that to the churches that are dumbing down everything so that worldly people can come into the church and feel comfortable. They can't worship God. You cannot worship God if you don't know Christ. Yeah, maybe you can sway your hands and sing the music. That's not true worship. That's false worship. That's entertainment. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become, look at the word he uses, worthless. That's pretty bold. No one seeks for God. 
No one does good, not even one. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of the ass, which is the snake, is under their lips. Verse 14, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is Nicodemus. He doesn't know the peace of God. He just knows all the religious trappings of Judaism and his success. The point is powerful. This is why Jesus is speaking this way to Nicodemus, this religious man. Because Nicodemus is all about outward appearances. And he's saying, Nicodemus, what is born of the flesh is born of the flesh. And what is of the Spirit is of the Spirit. See, if you're born of the Spirit of God, then the Spirit of God, the Bible says, is working in you. It's going to be working in your heart. It's going to be working in your life. There's going to be new attitudes that change as a result of the Spirit of God. There's going to be reflections of the Spirit of God's ministry in your life if you're truly born again. If you've been born of the Spirit. But let me also say, if you've been born again, if you've been born of the Spirit, guess what? You're going to struggle terribly with sin. You're going to struggle terribly with sin. What do I mean by that? Well, it kind of explains it to us in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. The Bible says that there's a spirit, there's a war between the spirit and the flesh. Verse 16, Paul says, I, Galatians 5, 16, I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the, the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh, guess what? They're against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit, guess what? They're against the flesh. This is a war. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. As a believer, he's saying. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. What are the works of the flesh? Well, he gives us a list. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, which has to do with drug abuse, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this, by the way, in case he didn't mention your pet sin. (laughs) Anything like that. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those, look at what it says, who do or practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not. Not maybe, not by chance. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. But on the other hand, it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. In verse 24, and those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. These are contrary to one another, the spirit and the flesh. Even in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners in the exiles 
to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And if you're sitting here this morning and you say, you know what, I don't have any war going on. What are you talking about? If you're sitting here this morning and you find it easy to violate God's word and continue to do the works of the flesh without any thought of what God wants or what God desires for you, I will say, based upon the authority of the word of God, you are not born again. You are not a Christian. You can call yourself a Christian until the cows come home. That doesn't matter. You don't understand. I'm a member of your church. Who cares? That's not relevant. What's relevant is, have you been born again? Have you experienced God making you a new person in Christ? That's the most important thing. That's what God wants from you. He doesn't want your religious trappings. He doesn't want your sacrifices. You know, we come to church and we make it sound like we're making a sacrifice every week when we come in here. Oh, I went to church today. Wow, boy, God bless you. Why do we think that way? We should be getting up Sunday mornings going, man, I can't wait. I can't wait because today I get to hear the word of God taught. I get to fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. I get to encourage another brother or sister in Christ. I get to pray. I get to experience spiritual life as the body of Christ. You shouldn't be pulling in here at 10 o'clock or 10.05. You should be here at 9.30 saying, I am excited. Man, who else is coming? I want to be here. I want to greet them when they walk through that door. I don't want them to walk into an empty auditorium. This isn't something we work up to. This isn't something we try to prove to other people. If you're telling, if you're really born again, if you're really born of the Spirit, you know the war that goes on inside of you. When you sin, you you are convicted. And you can't rest until you confess that sin. That's the Spirit's work. Is there any kind of sweet grace flowing out of your life that reminds us of Jesus from time to time? Do we see us reflecting the glory of Christ in how we deal and treat other people? Or do we see the complete opposite and yet still say, oh, I'm saved, I'm born again, I trusted Jesus when I was five? See, this is not merely an intellectual observation It's very more importantly a spiritual reality, a spiritual truth. Are you born of the Spirit of God? Because that which is born of the flesh, my friends, is still flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. We are partakers of the divine nature, the Bible says. And it will affect begin to affect every part of our lives, our commitments, our priorities, what we say, and by the way, what we don't say. I find some Christians are very comfortable, you know, giving the Christianese lines and and talking the, the Christian language in front of other Christians. Oh, it's easy to do that. But you take them out of the Christian environment and you put them with a bunch of non Christians, and what do you see? For some people, you see the exact opposite. Then they're not so quick to talk about Christ. 
They'll, they'll even be secretive about their faith. Well, you don't understand, Pastor. I work in a job where I can't just... They'll be very easily led by the unbelievers around them. I've seen it happen. Led into their practices, into their lifestyles. And when you say, aren't you uncomfortable around unbelievers? They, oh, no, not at all. They love it. Matter of fact, they enjoy it. As far as I read the Bible, there's only one reason for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to hang around non-believers. Only one reason. And that's to win them to Christ. That's the only reason. Now you have to put bridges in place. I get it. You have to have friends. I understand that. But I, I'll tell you, the, the believers, the scripture says believers have no fellowship with unbelievers. That's not a command, by the way. That's a, that's a statement of fact. We come from two different planes. We're in two different worlds. One's of the flesh, and guess what? One's of the spirit. And you can't mix the two. Those who are truly born again, we're on a different plane. We're on a different wavelength. Not because we're some high and mighty thing, because God saved us. He recreated us. If you're truly born again, you're a little uncomfortable in the presence of unbelievers. But why are we there? Why do we put ourselves in that situation? Why do we willingly walk into that uncomfortable environment where there's a bunch of unbelievers as a Christian? Because we want to tell them about Christ. We're willing to take the flack. We're willing to deal with the hassle and listen to some of the trash that comes out of their mouths only to tell them about the love of Christ. We endure a lot from an unbelieving world as believers. We who know Christ in order to tell them about the love of Jesus, to see them redeemed, to see them born again, to see them go to heaven with us. But I'll tell you one other thing. When you enjoy the presence of unbelievers more than the presence of believers, when you're more comfortable with pagans than you are Christians, there's something wrong. You can call yourself a Christian all day long. There's something wrong. If you've truly been born again, remember, everything produces after its own kind. Well, look at this main characteristic of the the spiritual birth. He says there, verse 7, I say to you, and what's interesting in the, the language, you is singular. I say to you, Nicodemus. And then he says, you, that you, guess what, is plural. So apparently Nicodemus may not have been the only people there. Maybe he's including other people. He says, you must be born again, everybody. These are my words to you, Nicodemus, but you know what? They apply to everybody. I'm telling everybody, you must be born again. And this is the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. And this is what he points out 
Back to John 3, quickly, he points this out. He says, the wind blows where it wills, where it, where it blows, Nicodemus. You don't, you don't have any say in that. You can't control the wind. The wind blows where it wishes, verse 8, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. Very practical illustration. You have no control over this. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I mean, you can see, maybe, maybe they were by themselves, I don't know. A lot of times when they would have discussions like this at night, they would go up on the rooftop of their home and they kind of had a, a built-in little courtyard there and they would, because it was cooler than sitting inside the house, they would go up on the rooftop and in Jerusalem, a lot of times there was wind blowing all the time. If you ever visit the Holy Land because of its elevation, there's always a wind there's always some kind of breeze blowing. Maybe they're up there and their hair is blowing in the thing. And Jesus says, wow, great, great illustration. You know what? The wind blows wherever it wishes. Nicodemus, you can see the effects of the wind, but you can't control it. He's saying all your religiosity, all your attempts <clears throat> to put off the real problem here, Nicodemus, it's not going to work. The only way it's going to do is, is if you're born of water and the Spirit. If God recreates you. And the Holy Spirit will work on whomever He wants. Sometimes we notice certain people when we say, well, you know, that guy never gets saved. You know, he's such a vile human being. And we go off and we think, well, and then we meet him a couple of years later and they're brand new in Christ and they're transformed and, and they're they're outshining us and we're going, wow, what happened? Like, well, they got saved. God changed their heart. The Holy Spirit moved in and took that person that was far from God and involved in gross sin. Everything that came out of their lips was antichrist. And what happens? God saves them. And all of a sudden, their whole nature changes. That's the sovereign work of the Spirit. We have to understand that, you know what? God is going to do his work in and through us. He doesn't need our cooperation. It's nice when he gets it, but he doesn't need it. And that should take a load off our shoulders, to be honest. Realizing that we don't have to perform before God to get a hug from God. That God loved us before we were ever even here. The Bible says before the foundation of the world, God set his love upon us. Some of you are pretty old, but you're not that old. You weren't here when God decided to save you. Yeah, it worked out in your life when you came to the end of your rope and you trusted in Christ. And you came to Christ, but it, it took that. It came to the end of your rope. Maybe you were in a religion. Maybe you were in a, a church and you were trying and you were trying and finally you realized, you know what? This is empty. Isn't there something more? And that's when God touched you. That's when God recreated you. That's when God caused you to repent, to turn from your sin and turn to his son as the savior. See, this is what it means to be saved, beloved. It's a genuine work of God on our behalf. It's nothing that we add to it. We can't save ourselves, that's for sure. We trust in Christ 
and in Christ alone. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you would cement these truths in our heart. Lord, I thank you for confronting Nicodemus on his religiosity, and I'm sure he was a nice guy and pretty well respected in the community, but that doesn't mean anything before a holy God. Lord, clearly, he did not understand yet. We're going to find out. Eventually, Lord, you do reach Nicodemus, I believe. But as of now, he's confounded with the words that Jesus is speaking to him. He understood them. But I think maybe part of the pride in his heart as a religious leader, he wasn't willing yet to bow the knee to Christ. Maybe there's somebody here this morning who has yet to bow the knee to Christ. Maybe there's someone here this morning who needs to cry out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know you're a sinner in the deep recesses of your heart. You know that. And you know that God is holy. And you need him to save you. All you have to do is tell him that. Just cry out to him. Admit, admit your inability and say, Lord, save me. I can't do this on my own. I'm tired. I've tried and tried and tried. I've gone down many paths. And they all end up a dead end. Lord, I need you to recreate me. I need you to save me. As only you can. Be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a prayer that God will answer when you pray it from a sincere heart. And as believers, I pray that we would pick ourselves up, brush ourselves off, and go out in this lost and dying world and speak boldly the Word of God. Speak boldly the proclaim, proclaim Christ and Christ alone. That we would not be these timid Christians that the world knows today. But that we would be bold. That we wouldn't be rude. We'd be gracious in every way. But we would be bold with our testimony. That we'd be bold with the truth of God. And Lord, that you would use us in a mighty way for your glory. We pray you'd bless our time of fellowship and food across the way as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.